this morning I was, um, uh, I watched a video on YouTube from uh, Dr. Maya Angelou, and it was a video called Love Liberates. And um, in this video, she, um, she says this, she says, I am grateful to love, to be loved, to have been loved, because love liberates. And then she tells a story. She says when, um, when she was young, when she was 17, she had her son. And uh, she lived with her mom at the time. Her mom had this big house, 14-room house. And at 17, she went to her mom and she said, I'm leaving. And her mom said, you're leaving my house. And she, um, like, this was a surprise to her because she had live-in help. Like, this was a very wonderful place to raise a child. And she said, I'm leaving. Uh, I found a job. I've got a room with cooking privileges down the hall. I've got a landlady who said she'll be the babysitter. And the, her mom said, you're leaving my house and you're taking the baby? And she said, yes, ma'am. And her mom said, I raised you and you know the difference between wrong and right. And when you step over this doorstep, do right. And don't let anyone else raise you and make you change. And remember this, you can always come home. And Dr. Angelou says that she went home every time life slammed her down and made it call her uncle. And never once did she act, did her mom act like, I told you so. She said, but she welcomed me home and said, oh, baby's home. Oh, my darling, mother is going to cook you something. She said, love liberated her. Love set her free. And we've heard this before, this, um, this idea that love sets us free, right? Maybe you've heard it said, if you love something, you will set it free. If you love someone, you'll set it, you'll set it free. You'll set them free. If you think about any great love story, um, the center of the action of the love is this idea of love liberating people, doing something to them, uh, setting them free, especially in the face of like opposition or ridicule, right? This is, this is Buddy the Elf bursting into his dad's office throwing off his hat and saying, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it, right? Um, this is Romeo and Juliet, uh, who are pursuing one another despite the opposition and danger of requiting a love that is violently opposed by their families. So why is this? Why, um, why does love do this? Well, the Bible tells the story that this is one of the great mysteries of the universe, that there actually is a God of love at the center of, of the universe who sets us free. And the Bible calls this love grace. And that's what we're gonna see in our passage tonight, that the grace of God sets Abraham free into repentance, rest, and renewal. So if you've been with us this semester, you know we're reading um, this, about the life of Abraham together. We're reading in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. Um, we're looking at the life of, the, of, life of Abraham. And... Um, Abraham was an ancient Near Eastern nomad. Uh, he lived around 2000 BC. And what we've learned so far is that when we first met him, that he was an idol worshiper. He loved the wrong things. He wasn't a great guy. A great guy. He's actually a pretty awful human. And then God called him and sent him. And he made these great, unbelievable promises to him, sent him out. And Abraham left his family and he left his father. He left his name, his land, and he set out trusting God and his promises. And last week we saw Abraham in the land that was promised to him. And this land was struck by a horrible famine. And, animal, and Abraham and his people and his animals were starving for food. So Abraham was freaking out, didn't know what to do, and he left. He took his family down to Egypt, basically trafficked his wife to Pharaoh because he was scared the Egyptians would kill him. And in his foolishness and his wickedness and his cowardice, in all of this, God remained present with him, even when he forgot. 
God protected him and his wife and his family and then sent them out of Egypt, back into the promised land, loaded down with wealth. And that's where we're picking up tonight. Um, this is printed in your bulletin. I think it's also on the screen if you want to follow along there. This is, I'm going to start with just reading verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13. So Abraham, or Abram, went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So the first thing I want you to see tonight is that the grace of God leads to repentance. And this word repentance isn't here, like we didn't read it in the text, but we actually see it in the geography. God's kindness to Abram in chapter 12 leads Abram to repent. And he returns to the altar that he first built in the promised land, when he, and he goes and he worships the Lord. And this is an ancient Near Eastern way of saying, in the midst of his failure and sin, Abraham returns to square one. He goes back to the beginning. He returns to God. He repents. Now, why does he do this? It's because of the kindness of God. It's the grace of God that leads to repentance. In Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Capital of the World, uh, he begins this, um, I've shared this with you all in the past, he begins this story with this little vignette about a father who goes to Madrid in search for his estranged son, Paco. And he's looking for his son, but he turns up empty, and he's desperate to find his son in Madrid, and so he places a small ad in the newspaper that says, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday, all is forgiven, Papa. So then Tuesday at noon rolls around, and when the father arrives at the hotel, he can't believe his eyes, because before him is a crowd of 800 young men, all named Paco, all awaiting their father's arrival every one of them longing to return to their father's embrace. So what do you think when you hear the word repentance or repent? Now, some of us, that conjures up um, images of groveling um, or it's something that we think that we have to do in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn his love, that somehow our repentance is the catalyst that initiates God's grace. But what we see here is that it's actually God's grace. It's his love that initiates And Abraham responds. Repentance isn't quit doing the bad stuff and start doing the good stuff. It simply means turning around, returning, going home to God. Repentance is running back into God's embrace. It's showing up at the Hotel Montana, not because you hope that maybe it's your dad who put up the ad, but because you know that you're the Paco he's looking for. Abraham is running back across the promised land to his father to enter his embrace. I think sometimes we think of repentance as this one-time thing, but it's actually an ongoing process in our lives, something that we repeat again and again and again and again and again. So a question for you is what do you do when you screw up? How do you respond to yourself and to God when you find yourself in the midst of your own sin, the morning after? What do you say or do, what, um, what do you do when you, when you hurt that person that you love, when you say that hurtful thing to your friend or to your parents? How do you respond to yourself and to God when your heart, you find your heart filled with pride and unbelief? Do you take the opportunity to repent, to return to God, to say sorry, to start over? Or do you double down? Or do you push it away and keep going forward? 
This is a question I want you to think about. Like, what do you do when you screw up? What do you do when things don't go the way you planned or when you sabotage yourself? Um, a few years ago, I was walking through the library and I saw a student I knew and he was sitting at his laptop with his index finger out and he was pounding his backspace key. I said, what, what are you doing? He's like, my, back, my backspace is broken. It only works if I, hit the, if I hit the stuff out of it. And I think he was in the middle of writing an email and my first thought was like, that sounds really stressful to be at a computer without a backspace key. I mean, imagine, imagine that. Imagine you're sitting down at your computer, that essay that you have due tomorrow or that internship application for the summer that's due next week. Um, how would not having a backspace key change the way that you write? I mean, I would be terrified. Like, while writing this paragraph, I think I used my backspace key like 30 times. Like, how would you respond? So, let's say you don't have a backspace key. Maybe that means you type very carefully, or maybe you handwrite your rough draft so you don't make any big formatting or organizational mistakes. But what if your finger slips or a cat runs across your computer? Like, what are you going to do if you don't have a backspace key? I think this is often how life feels. That there's no margin for error. There's no room to mess up. Life often feels like you don't, you don't have a backspace key. But the gospel, the good news of what God has avowed to Abraham and accomplished in Jesus Christ, frees us to repent. Everything that needed to be done has been done by Jesus perfectly for you. And this frees you to repent. It frees you to turn around. And this is what we see in Abraham. He is free to go back to square one. We don't repent to get God's grace. Repentance is always a response to God's grace. You can't earn God's love through your religious activity. It's his kindness that leads you to return to him. The grace of God leads to repentance. And second, the grace of God leads to rest. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife behind the her- between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of, Lot- of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abraham said to, said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go left. Last week we saw that Abraham was starving to death and then they went into Egypt and now we see that they are so rich, they're so loaded down with stuff and with animals um, that they have to split up. Um, They have this new problem because of their wealth. And what we see with Abraham in this is that um, he's able to relax. He's able to let go. He doesn't have to be in charge. He doesn't have to be in control. We see that this in how he handles the problem. Abraham and Lot, they leave Egypt, they're loaded down, and, and they have this problem before him, right? The, their herdsmen are fighting, there's too much livestock, and Abraham can handle this a couple of different ways. He's the patriarch, so he can just say to Lot, good luck, like, we obviously don't fit, you go do your own thing. Or he can say to Lot, hey, I'm going to stay here and you go over there, but he doesn't do either of those things. He says to Lot, you go first. He lets him pick first. And, and commentators say that what he's doing here, he's using this, this word for kinsman is this, it's showing that he's actually really kind and gentle in the way that he's relating to Lot, that um, he's, he's treating him like a brother, right? He's not 
He's not pulling rank. He's not asserting his authority or his control. He's actually uh, relating to him relationally, saying, I, wa- I want you to know that I love you, and I want you to be able to cho- choose first, right? What we see in Abraham is that he doesn't have to be in charge. How different is this from when there was a famine and he took everything into his own hands and fled, right? He doesn't have to be in charge. He's able to let go. He's able to open his hands. God's grace, the promise that God makes to him, frees him to rest. And then the passage goes on. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked great sinners against the Lord. So unlike Abraham, who is trusting the promise and being led to rest, Lot, we see, is operating out of his own strength, and he's grasping at where he thinks real rest will be found. And commentators say that there's some linguistic clues here to help us see what's going on. It starts with verse 10, that we see Lot lifts his eyes, and he looks, and he's looking at land that's geographically outside of the promised land. And this would ring a bell for Israel, right? First, he mentions that it's like Egypt, and that's where they were enslaved, and then he mentions that it's like the garden of the Lord. So this is, it's like Eden. And Eden, this is where you have your real identity. Eden is where, is where you are your true self, where you have purpose and meaning and worth without brokenness or confusion or frustration or pain or sin. And so the linguistic clues are showing us that Lot wants the garden of the Lord without the Lord. He's grasping for the garden. And we see this with this little foreshadowing that happens that we're told he chose the land that had Sodom and Gomorrah before the Lord destroyed those cities, right? This is a nod from the author that this is a bad idea, what Lot is doing. Lot's saying, I want the garden of the Lord without God. Abraham is resting in the promise and it's contrast with Lot who is grasping. So this is kind of like the end of Toy Story 2. So you know how Toy Story 2 ends... Hopefully, you guys have seen Toy Story 2, right? So you learn, spoiler alert, if you haven't, it's, it's fine. Um, the prospector, Stinky Pete, um, he's actually the bad guy, right? He's been in his, his box the whole time, but he's actually not been in his box, and he's actually the bad guy. And he has this vision of the good life, of where he thinks everything will be made right that's in some museum in Japan, right? And so Woody, in contrast, knows that real life is found in belonging to Andy. And when we watch this, actually we watch some of it today, when we watch this, we know that Stinky Pete is making this arrogant, horrible decision trying to get everyone to Japan. Um, everyone seems to know but Stinky Pete this is a bad idea. Lot's decision is arrogant and horrible. And why does Lot do this? Because he's grasping. He's grasping for the garden, for good life apart from God. So where do you want your garden without the Lord? Where are you grasping for life without God? Is it your grades? Is it in your academics? I mean, that's why you're here, right? You came to Wake because it has good academics. Um, Are you chasing a high GPA at all costs? And then do you pursue God only when it's convenient? Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe that's where you set your heart if Um, Maybe if that guy or that girl would like you, that is where you're chasing 
um, chasing the, your garden. Or maybe it's social status or career or the good job. Maybe that's where good life, the good life is found. Maybe you don't know where you're grasping. Maybe you hear me rattling, rattling these things. And you're like, I don't know where I'm grasping for the garden. So another way of asking that question is for you to ask yourself this question. Where are you not able to rest? Where are you not able to rest? Um, I just started reading a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And in this book, this, this pastor tells a story about a young pastor calling up a mentor. Um, this is in the late 90s, and this young pastor was working at a church called Willow Creek, which at the time was one of the most influential churches in the world outside of Chicago. And the pastor, uh, he's, he's a well-known author, he's a well-known author and pastor, and um, the kind of guy that you would, you would look to, is like, this guy has it figured out. He knows how to follow Jesus. Um, but behind the scenes, he says that he was feeling what he calls that he was getting sucked into the vortex of megachurch insanity. And so he calls up one of his mentors, this man, Dallas Willard, and he asks him, what do I need to do to become the me I want to be? Isn't that a great question? What do I need to do to become the me I want to be? And then there's this long silence on the other end of the line. And then he heard, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He said, okay, well, what else? And then another long silence, and Dallas Willard said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. How does that sit with y'all? I mean, think about it. Think about how we answer the simplest question, how are you, right? I'm good, just, just busy. Like, granted, there are good things that you can be busy with. Um, when you, when you, there's a kind of busyness that when your life is full, that's good. Right? By that definition, Jesus himself was busy. And the problem isn't when you have a lot to do, it's when you have too much to do. And the only way to keep up with the quota is to hurry. Um, one spiritual author, a guy, Ronald Rollheiser, says that we suffer from pathological busyness. Right? You guys know this. Your schedules are so full. You look at the beginning of semester, you look over what's ahead of you, you fill up your schedule, and probably by right now, you're starting to feel it, right? Just there's too much to get done, I have to hurry to get through it. Let's look back at Abraham, right? He is learning that his life is a calling to rest in the absolute sovereignty of God, to rest in God's promise. But then we see Lot, who was in a hurry, right? He didn't want to wait for God. He hurried, he grasped at the things that he thought would satisfy, the garden without God. So why don't we rest? Um, you can think of a couple of reasons. First, just basic unbelief. Like we really don't believe that we can trust God with the details of our lives. Psalm 46 tells us to be still and know that I am God. Just question, how much do we avoid stillness because we really don't believe that God can handle us and everything on our plates? Um, second reason I think that we can't rest is um, pride. Like, we just think too highly of ourselves. I heard a story about a student who's involved in RUF on another campus, um, school similar to, to Wake Forest, and the campus minister preached a sermon on rest and talked about how God worked for six days and he rests for one. And so we as humans um, are designed to work for six days and to rest for one day a week. And then after a large group, a, a student, um, who I was told is a particularly brilliant student, came up to the campus minister and he said... This doesn't apply to me because to whom much is given, much is expected. Saying, I'm too important to rest. It is irresponsible for me to take a day off. This is what he was saying to his campus minister. This kid is brilliant. 
He had just heard a sermon about God taking a day off. Brilliant kid, but so proud. Um, I'm no different when I don't take a day off, right? We are so full of ourselves that we really think that it's up to us. We really think that it's up to us, right? We don't rest because of our basic unbelief, because of our pride. I think also another reason we don't rest is because we're afraid of looking bad. I also want y'all to hear, as I'm saying this, I'm saying we because this is me too. Like, I'm not saying you. I am with you in this um, pathological busyness that, that we feel. I think we're afraid of looking bad, right? We just care so much about what others think of us. Look at Abraham. Abraham, we're told that there's these other people dwelling around them, right? There's Canaanites and Perizzites, these other um, Perizzites. There are these other nomadic people around. And so people would have known that Abraham gave the better land to Lot, right, to his nephew. Um, They would look at him and think that he was foolish, maybe um, laugh at him, Laugh at him for not grasping, for not going and getting his, but rather resting in God's promise. This promise that one day he will have a land. But now, he, instead of picking the lush thing that looked like a garden, he takes, with, he takes the desert. Do you feel guilty when you rest? Like when you decide, I'm going to take this day off, I'm going I'm to go to church, and then I'm, gonna take, I'm not going to work today. Um, do you feel guilty when you do that? Here's the thing. The Bible doesn't just say that it's a good idea. Um, It actually says that we're made for this, that God says he designed us to rest, that life actually works the way it's supposed to when we rest. And we act like this command, um, it's like this horrible command from this mean, angry dad, right? Take a day off. I don't know. I, I hear it that way sometimes. Do you worry about it tomorrow? But it's actually this really wonderful, gracious invitation and command to rest, to take a day off. Worry about it tomorrow. I think this is a good litmus test for faith. Can you rest? Can you say with Abraham, I don't want the garden of the Lord without the Lord? So the grace of God leads us to repentance. It leads us to rest. And finally, it leads us to renewal. We'll read from verse 14 on. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you into your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So here we have God and Abraham renewing their relationship. God initiates, he speaks to Abraham, he gives some new details about this great promise, right, that the offspring will be um, as uncountable as the dust of the earth. And then we see that Abraham restores, or he responds in worship. And this isn't a new relationship, but this is a a renewed relationship. And I think all relationships work this way. Think about... um, like a friend that you haven't seen for a long time and then you get together again and um, you, you start to catch up and what do you say? Uh, you say, we just picked up where we left off. Like when, you, when you're coming back together with someone you haven't seen for a long time, you're, it's really not about getting new information, though you do, it's about resetting the relationship. Um, this happens in our friendships, this sort of renewal happens in our friendships. It also happens in marriage. Um, renewal happens in marriage. Just as an aside, um, This is actually what sex is for in marriage. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. 
that renews the promises that two people make on their wedding day. It's a renewal of those promises where, where a husband says to a wife and a wife to a husband, everything that I have belongs to you. And this is why, this is why when you have sex outside of marriage, you, um, you're lying to your partner. Hear me out on this. Um, hear me out on this. You're actually lying to your partner because your body is communicating, everything I have belongs to you. But you're not sharing your student debt, right? You're not sharing your credit card. You're communicating with your body everything I has belonged to you, but you're not communicating that with the rest of your life. And you actually feel that tension, right? You feel that you're holding something back. You're actually lying with your body. But in marriage, sex is actually a covenant renewal ceremony. You're renewing the vows. With all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. That one's for free. That's just a side. But here... Um, we actually see that God is renewing his relationship with Abraham. He's renewing his relationship with Abraham. So where does God do that for you? Where do you experience God renewing his promises to you? And then where do you respond? Maybe that's here at RUF. Maybe this is where you come to hear, I hope, I hope that's what this is for you, a place where you hear to come to, to hear God's promises to you and then you respond in song um, to his grace to you. Maybe this happens for you in church. This is what happens during church worship, that God's people come together to hear the promises of God spoken to them, to to, um, watch a baptism happen, to take the Lord's Supper together, to actually have a meal where God and his grace feeds us spiritually on the body and blood of Jesus, right? And there's something amazing about the church in that it's people of all ages. It's babies to old people, right? You you go and you enter into this, this covenant renewal ceremony, which is what the Lord's Supper is, what communion is with people who've been doing this for a lot longer than you have. The grace of God sets us free into repentance, into rest, and renewal. Um, There's a story on the podcast, This American Life, a couple years ago called Poetry of Propaganda. And in this podcast, uh, they tell the story about an ad agency that was tasked with helping the Colombian government dismantle the rebel forces, who were the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia. And in Spanish, they're called the, the FARC. And their work, um, the ad campaign in the Colombian jungle, led to hundreds of guerrilla soldiers defecting in the first real peace talks in 50 years. And so this is what this ad agency did, was they had three campaigns all at Christmas time where they decorated the jungle, right? The worn paths, the soldiers walked, the rivers they traversed, decorated the jungle in Christmas lights and memories of home, saying to the soldiers, don't you want to be home with your families for Christmas? So in 2012, the peace talks began and and there were still a lot of these rebels in the jungle, still people who had not returned home. And so for the final campaign, the ad agency um, was trying to figure out what is the thing that is keeping people from coming home out of the guerrilla warfare back to their families. And they realized that it was fear. They feared that if they actually went home, their families wouldn't, wouldn't take them in. They feared because of what they had done, the violence and the bloodshed, um, the rejection of their families, that they would actually be rejected. So their final campaign they did was called Mother's Voices, and they found 37 moms whose kids were... Um, were soldiers in, in the, um, with the rebels, and um, they got pictures of these soldiers when they were kids. And they made sure that they got pictures when they were particularly young so that the only person who could recognize who, in the fo- who was in the photo was the person themselves. And so they took these photos, 
And they made posters, and under the picture they wrote, before you were a gorilla, you were my child. Before you were a gorilla, you were my child. Come back this Christmas, I'm waiting for you. And then they printed thousands of these posters, and they hung them in the towns that the gorillas moved through. They nailed them to trees in the jungle. And then men came home that Christmas. And the men who came home, they didn't come home because they knew they were bad. They, they came home because they knew they were loved. In closing, I, just, um, I think we have to ask one more question of this text. And that question is that how could Abraham be accepted by God in spite of his failure? Right? If God really is good and just, if he really is just, then how does he let Abraham off the hook? Right? This guy who traffics his wife into Pharaoh's harem to cover himself. Where is God's justice? I think that's a question that we have to deal with. Because a God who is not a God of justice is not worthy of our worship. And the answer, that comes, the answer to that question comes to us 2,000 years later. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're told that Jesus faced a similar temptation to Abraham and Lot. We're told that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's, um, he's tempted by Satan. He's taken by Satan to the top, to the top of a tall mountain and he's shown all the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. And Satan promises Jesus to give the, all of that to, to him if he would just bow down and worship him. Satan offers Jesus the promised land without the cross. All of the kingdoms on the earth were on the table and Jesus just walked away. Why? Right, these were his by rights. Why did he walk away? Why didn't he just claim them then and there? And this is because Jesus knew that Satan was offering him the kingdoms of the earth apart from the plan of God, which would mean that he would have them without saving God's people. Friends, Jesus loves you so much that he would rather suffer the hell of the cross to redeem you than have the whole world without you. Lot chose with his eyes. He grasped at the garden without the Lord. It looked like a good choice, but it was a decision that he would live to regret. He turned his back on the promised land, which meant that he turned his back on the promise that God made to Abraham and ultimately that God made through Abraham's offspring to us in Jesus Christ. And in contrast to Lot, Abraham chose the difficult way of trusting God where there were no guarantees of worldly security on that path. There was simply the promise of God that he would be his God now and forever. And this promise ultimately took Christ all the way to the cross. And this is what I want you to see. Abraham's undeserved path to eternal blessing was only made possible by Jesus's undeserved embrace of hell's curse in his place. And our hope lies in the same place. Jesus Christ, who lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you deserve. The truth, the truth is that we are far more like Lot than we are like Abraham, right? We are constantly following the path of unbelief, not repenting, not resting, not renewing. Yet, when the Father looks at you today, do you know what he sees? He does not see your sin and failure. Instead, he sees two things. He sees Jesus Christ on the cross, paying the price for the sin of our unbelief in our place. And he sees Jesus Christ on the mountain, making the faith-filled choice to walk the path of obedience on your behalf. And because of this, he smiles on you with joy and says, receive my blessing, beloved sons. Receive my blessing, beloved daughters. 
Christ has earned my favor towards you. You are saved by his faith in my promise. Before you were a gorilla, you were my child. Before you were a gorilla, you were my child. Come home, I'm waiting for you. Paco, all is forgiven. Love, Papa. Return, rest, renew your relationship with God. This is his invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for the story of Abraham and that in it we can see ourselves. And uh, Lord, we ask for help. Would you help us? Um, help us to see.